0: if you will, um, open up with me to Luke chapter 9, and we're going to be in verses 18 through 27. Now, if you were to go out and ask the general population, who is Jesus? You're probably, you know, really, you're definitely going to get a pretty good variety of answers. I mean, some will say, yeah, you know, Jesus is the Son of God. You know, some might say, you know, I think Jesus was, you know, a, a prophet, even maybe a great prophet. Some will say that Jesus is a great teacher. You know, some will say that Jesus is, you know, more of an idea, an idea that, that helps us to, to have a good morality or something like that, but really wasn't a historical person. You know, some may as go as far as to say that Jesus was a religious fanatic, or even to go as far as to say that Jesus was a false teacher. And if you go and you ask that question, your, your answers are going to be pretty varied from what you know, the general population is going to say about who Jesus is. In fact, uh, Legionnaire Ministries did a research poll last year, and they asked people what they thought of the statement, Jesus was a great teacher, but was not actually God. And of the people that responded um, in the United States, 52 percent of people agreed with that statement that Jesus was a great teacher but was not actually God. Twelve percent of the people that were polled, you know, just weren't sure. You know, it, you know, you see that, and it's like it really shows a lack of, of knowledge of who Jesus is. Because if you think about it, it's like, okay, well, if Jesus really was a great teacher— he probably wouldn't be wrong on his entire message. I don't know. I mean, if, if I was to take a class in seminary um, about, like, Baptist history, and they're teaching me the history of bowling, and everything that they share with me is incorrect information, it doesn't really matter how much I like that teacher. It's like, you're, you're not a great teacher. Everything you taught me was false. But at the same, you know, it shows that there's this false understanding of who Jesus is and a false understanding of even what his message is. Because a lot of the people that say, you know, Jesus was a great teacher, but he wasn't actually God, you know, they really think he was a great teacher because you know they think that his message was something that it wasn't. You know, they don't know the answer to who Jesus is. But at the same time, we can say, well, that's really expected. I mean, we're asking unsaved people to have saved answers on who Jesus is. You know, it it makes sense for people that are not Christians to not fully understand who Jesus is or what his message was. And what's really troubling in this this poll that Legionnaire Ministries did was from people that profess Christ, professing evangelicals, only 66% of people disagreed with that statement. You know, 30% of the people they polled that said that they were Christians said that Jesus was not actually God. You know, that's startling. And maybe you're sitting here wondering, like, David, why are you sharing this right now? Well, the big question that Luke sets before us today is, who is Jesus? And our answer to that question has eternal ramifications. Luke's first phrasing of the question came from Herod uh, in response to the people's speculations. In Luke 9, 9, Herod said, "'John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things?' This was pretty well answered by Christ's feeding of the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. I mean, literally tons of barley cakes and fish came from his hands. So, we ask, who is Jesus? Jesus is Lord of creation. Luke then skips over uh, seven important events in Christ's life that are recorded in Mark's gospel before presenting the question a second time. You know, why we can ask, why is there such a pronounced emphasis on who Jesus is in the book of Luke? Well, we see Jesus' Galilean ministry was over, and now He had set His sights on Jerusalem, where He would be betrayed and flogged, and He would endure the bloody cross. And so we see, because of all that was about to come, we see what we remembered on Good Friday, what we celebrated on Easter Sunday. It was imperative that the apostles understand and confess who Jesus is. So let's read our passage this morning, Luke 9:18 through 27. And it happened that while he was praying alone the disciples were with him and he questioned them saying, "Who do the people say that I am?" They answered and said, "John the Baptist; and others say Elijah; but others that one of the prophets of old has risen again." And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. But he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Dear God, as we come to your word this morning, as we look at, at this passage in the book of Luke, we pray that, that, that you speak through me this morning. God, help me to get out of the way, and help us to see what you are saying um, to us today through this passage. Help us to see what you were saying to your people at the time that this was recorded. In Jesus' name, amen. As we look here at Luke 9, 18 through 27, you know, we see where the scene begins. You know, it begins with Jesus in prayer with His disciples. You know, Jesus clearly saw their confession of who do you say that I am. He saw that it was vitally important because He precedes it with prayer. You know, Jesus had prayed at His baptism. He had prayed before choosing the twelve. He would pray Um, as a prelude to his transfiguration, and right now he prayed. And Jesus began by asking the opinions of others. He asks them, who do the crowd say that I am? And the disciples, you know, initially they respond the same way that the crowd does. And they really, what they do here is they give Jesus the results of the latest public opinion poll. they say, well, you know, some say that uh, you're John, some say Elijah, some say a prophet of old. Now, the average Hebrew on the street would have thought Jesus was was really great. You know, they were impressed by His prophetic character. They were impressed by His miracles and and the healings, His teaching ability. But there's a big problem, and the problem was that they didn't have the slightest idea that He was the Messiah. Their best guess was that He was a prophet and that best guess was a massive miss on who Jesus really is. You know, if we look at, at them saying that Jesus was a prophet, well, look, the millions of people who, that embrace Islam believe that Jesus was a prophet. In fact, they believe that He was the greatest of prophets, but definitely not God. And their miss has eternal consequences, eternal death instead of eternal life. <coughs> Today, a lot of people believe that Jesus was a moral teacher. And perhaps the most prevalent view is that Jesus was a good man, even the best of men, a great moral teacher. And millions hold this view despite um, really a brilliant debunking uh, given recently by uh, C.S. Lewis who wrote, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says that he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus knew that the answer to, who do you say that I am, was huge. Then in reply, Jesus presses the question beyond the opinion of the crowds. He makes it personal in verse 20, saying, But you, who do you say that I am? That you is emphatic. The question, who is Jesus, has to be settled by everyone. Every individual person, young or old, rich or poor, male or female, ruler or citizen. We can't avoid or duck or put off that question. The Lord of Lords asks us all. You know, heaven, has, like, heaven has a one-question exam for all of humanity. Who do you say that Jesus is? The answer to that question matters a lot. You know Now, there are people in the world that we will never know. And that's not going to cost us a thing. There are people that our friends and our families know really well, but we've never met, we're probably never going to meet, and you know what? It's not going to change eternity. But Jesus, we must all know. So I encourage you don't be like Herod, who had no answer to this question. Know the answer for yourself. In verse 19, they all answered when talking about what the crowds think. You know, some professing Christians can be expert on all kinds of opinions that other people have about Jesus, but in reality, they know very little about him for themselves. You know, when Jesus makes the question personal in verse 20, we notice only one man answers. It's Peter. And Peter answers God's Messiah. And Peter knows Jesus better than the crowds. And two things need to be added here because you know Peter didn't come to this answer by himself. You know, in Matthew 16:17 Jesus says to Peter after this confession, "Blessed are you, Simon son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven." We cannot get to know Jesus by listening to men. God must teach us by his spirit and through his word. Peter's confession showed that the disciples had come to believe that Jesus was the anointed one of Israel, that, uh, that Israel had been waiting for since the time of David. But we also see in that confession, we wondered, you know, what exactly did Jesus as Messiah look like to them? You know, what, what was their expectation here? Well, what they were expecting was a superhuman being that would overthrow Israel's enemies. They would regather God's earthly people from the four corners of the world and make Jerusalem the center of the world, establishing the perfect reign of God on earth. Peter and the disciples, they did not yet understand all of the ramifications of the Messiah's coming. But they did have the big picture. You know, Peter was the only one who said it, but then, you know, the rest of the disciples, they all nodded and murmured their assent. You know, Jesus was their long-awaited, God-given hope of salvation. He was their deliverer. And so, his answer to the exam, it was, it was partially correct. And it's a good lesson for us. You know, we have to make sure that just because we know one thing about Jesus does not mean that we know everything about Jesus. Because when we do that, we miss out on growth we miss out on some really big points. Now, the Lord is infinite, and He's inexhaustible. You know, even when we know Him well, we still only partially know Him. You know, as we live the Christian life, our goal is to be growing in our knowledge of the Lord. We don't, we don't just reach this point where we're like, oh, now I know everything. <coughs> sorry. I'm sorry for the live stream people. I just did that too. I feel bad about that. But we don't just reach this point where we're like, oh, I know everything about Jesus. I can stop growing. I'm good. I've reached that that knowledge. It's done. You know, we will be getting to know Jesus our entire lifetime, we'll be getting to know Jesus for all of eternity. It's important as believers that we grow in our knowledge of the Lord. And here we see that this was no different for the disciples. But there was more. This exchange was full of surprises. No one would have expected Peter's great confession to be followed by a warning to keep it quiet. But Jesus strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. And we can ask why. It can kind of seem, kind of seem crazy. It's like, Jesus, why would, you, why would you tell them not to share this? Well, there were a ton of wrong answers going on right then to the question, who do you say that I am? And as we see here, the disciples also still didn't fully get it. So, to go throughout uh, Palestine and herald Jesus as the Messiah could easily incite a political movement full of people that have Jewish nationalistic expectations, and then attempting to force Him into a role of overthrowing the Roman army. This would have been a political movement staffed with loyal but unregenerate people people that did not understand who Jesus really was. And so Jesus was very firm in his insistence that they keep quiet. It was not yet the time. The disciples, and especially Peter, no doubt felt deflated by this prohibition and would feel even more so when they heard Jesus' holy, unexpected revelation that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed on the third day, and be raped. You now, for us, having history's perspective, you know, we understand what Jesus was saying. But to the disciples, this was a dark and hard-to-understand message. Jesus, the Son of Man, would suffer many things. He would be rejected by the elders, and the chief priests, and the scribes. You know, these three groups, making up the Sanhedrin, would later officially examine Him and reject Him like a counterfeit coin. The Messiah would even be killed. You know, this prophecy was so completely foreign to the disciples' concept of the the Messiah that when He died, they were disoriented and devastated. And look, it wasn't like they weren't warned. It wasn't like here in this passage and other places throughout Scripture that Jesus didn't say, you know, "This this is what's going to happen. This is what it means when I'm saying that I am the Messiah. But you ever have, like, expectations about something? Like, you think you know the answer, and someone, someone's, like, talking to you. It's like you get the part, and you're like, yeah, 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 I know all that. And then the rest of what they say, is, like, goes in one ear and just right out the other. It's like, this is happening with the disciples. Like, Jesus is saying, hey, this is going to happen. And they're like, yeah, 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 I know all about that. I know you're the Messiah. And then he dies, and then all of a sudden they're like, wait, what? It wasn't as if he hadn't told them. They had heard, they'd heard him predict it, but they hadn't accepted it yet as fact. It just, it did not fit with their picture of what the Messiah would be and do. And Jesus mentioned his resurrection here also, but that event was incomprehensible to the disciples until after it occurred. The scenario that Jesus described was the precise opposite of their expectations. They knew that he was the Messiah, but his words were nonsensical, nonsensical to them at the time because yet fully understand what that all entailed. And as shocking as it was, verse 22 defines what it means to call Jesus Messiah or Christ or the Chosen One. In answering the question, who is Jesus, the first thing that we learn is that Jesus is the Messiah, which means that God chose him to die for sin and rise for eternal life and to rescue men from the coming judgment of God against sin. And he does this so that we might never die but live with God forgiven and counted as righteous and adopted into his family. The truth is what everyone in this chapter was continuing to miss. And so Jesus warns them against sharing because, A, they don't understand it yet, and, B, he hadn't finished his mission yet. But this is who the Lord is, the chosen one who dies and rises from the dead for sinners. Though the twelve did not know it, confessing Christ always requires embracing a suffering Savior. On this side of the cross, having the advantage of chronicled history, you know, maybe it's easier for us to understand and accept the necessity of His suffering and dying for us. And I think a lot of times we can often underrate the, the extreme blessing it is to have the entirety of Scripture at our disposal. I mean, it's an incredible blessing. It really helps us to be able, you know, to put things into perspective, you know, as we go and and we're reading the Scriptures, have the entirety of Scripture at our disposal. And so, looking at our need for the suffering Savior, we see that we were so thoroughly lost in our sins that only His atoning sacrifice could deliver us. And so, as believers, we cling to that gory uh, cross. In fact, we glory in it. So, here's the question for us today do you believe it? At this point, are you Herod, who doesn't even meet Jesus? Are you the disciples who, who stuck with what they had heard about Jesus, or are you Peter, who begins to see, but not fully yet? Is Jesus Christ your personal Savior and Lord? Because if not, He can be. Confess your sins. Put your trust in Him as the atonement for your sin and the Lord of your life. Start with what you do know. Put your faith in Jesus, and He will teach you more. When we confess Christ, we embrace His dying on the cross for us, but we also accept the reality of a cross for ourselves. Apparently, using no transition, Jesus next informed His disciples that they too would have to carry a cross. And He said to all, in verse 23, if anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow Me. This call to a crucified life demands a willingness to pour out our life for Christ. Discipleship requires a cross. You know, we got to be really careful, you know, in today, in, in the age of the internet and of social media, that we don't let Twitter or Facebook or Instagram define what following Jesus is for us. You know, it's so easy to do that. It's like, well, I'm, I'm a Christian and I am… I am you know, I'm following Jesus. I am sharing Jesus. I, I clicked share on Facebook. I retweeted this. I liked, I liked this message. I, I, I responded to a comment. You know, following Jesus only meant clicking a button, then everyone would do it. I mean, at least, you know, go ahead, cover your bases at least. You know, when I, uh, several years ago, I took my youth on a mission trip to Washington, D.C. to work with with a church planner friend that I had there. And one of the things that he wanted us to do is, like, I want to learn how to serve my community and and from there be able to then go and share the gospel and whatnot. And so one of the things that we did was we did uh, an evangelism survey. So we asked a bunch of questions about the community, and it led up to a gospel presentation. You know, I had some of my younger students, a couple of my sixth graders with me, and so I was like, I'll, I'll help you guys out. You know, I'll do some of the talking as we, we start off, and we came to the home of a Buddhist, and you know, really, they didn't they didn't speak great English, so they didn't, they weren't fully understanding, but like, they were they were really kind. They were having a conversation with us, and you know, and my you know, sixth graders were able to go through that thing, and they were able to share the gospel, and the last thing was is, you know, you, know, you kind of go, and you're like, you know, would you like to hear a gospel presentation or whatever? And she's like, yeah, 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 that's fine. And she, she heard the gospel presentation and didn't quite fully understand it. And so then they said, well, would you like to accept Jesus as your Savior? And she goes, sure. You know, and I was like, you know, at that point, you know, we kind of wrapped up the conversation. She, she didn't understand what we were talking about, but at that it's like, yeah, I mean, I'm doing my thing over here, but sure, I'll cover my bases. I'll, I'll do that, too. I share that story to say, again, if following Jesus only requires clicking a button or just being like, yeah, that's fine, I'll accept that too, everyone would do it, because why not? But Jesus goes to a cross, and so we who follow him must go to a cross as well. He dies for us, and we die with him. The cross of suffering and death comes first in the Christian life. Living for Christ requires self-denial. And this begins when we voluntarily leave the throne of our lives, when we radically renounce self-centeredness. A crucified Savior is not well served by self-pleasing, self-indulging people. So, what are our crosses? Because it's important that we understand what they are. These, our crosses are not simply trials or hardships. Not to take anything away from our trials or hardships, but, you know, some of us can think that a bad boss or an unfair teacher or a bossy or really annoying family member is a cross, but they're not. And we also miss the point when we call an illness or a handicap our cross. Now, those things are, can be extreme trials. They can be extreme hardships. But bearing a cross has a, a very specific definition. A cross results from specifically walking in Christ's steps, embracing His life. It comes from bearing disdain because we are following the narrow way of Jesus Christ, who is the way, who is the truth, and who is the life. It comes from living out the business and sexual ethics of Christ in the marketplace, in the community, in our families, and in our world. It comes from standing true in difficult circumstances for the sake of the gospel. Our crosses come from and are proportionate to our dedication to Christ. And so, difficulties in general do not indicate cross-bearing. But difficulties for Christ's sake do. And this cross-carrying is humbling as well. Jesus says, let him deny himself. We can't follow Jesus and at the same time come first in our lives. We have to deny ourselves. We have to say no to our desires so that we can say yes to Jesus. Because he is king. And we are servants. We also see Jesus tells us that this cross carrying is daily. He says, let Him take up His cross daily, which means in the Christian life, there's no vacation, there's no holidays, there's no sick days, no summer breaks from Jesus. Every morning we wake, we must say, good morning, my cross. Every morning we wake to die to self and the world so that we can follow Jesus. Now, if we're to do that, if we are going to take up our cross daily and follow Jesus, you know, we should probably have a reason for that, and we do. You know, we are required to carry our cross because life lies on the other side of it. The necessity of the cross leads us to its logic. In verse 24, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And talk about a phrase that is counter-cultural in our society. I mean, even within the Christian church in America, so often our efforts or our walks themselves are fascinated with the self, with our own way of seeing things. You know, self-focus is a big part of uh, our modern evangelical identity. You know, it's so incredibly worldly. It's so secular. Yet we've seen in the Christian church in America, a lot of times that is seeped in. And this is why increasing numbers of evangelical Christians or professing evangelical Christians care little about the glory of God or about reaching a lost world. For them, Christianity exists to enhance their lives, to to fix their marriages, to, to help their bank accounts, to help their prestige. But to bear a cross, to pay a price for standing for Jesus, no thanks. We must be careful to make sure that our Christianity is centered on Christ and not centered on ourselves, because if we're not careful, that idol of self is coming right up. You know, the moment that we are not careful, that idol will creep right on up, and always will. But Jesus' words reveal the only way to life. To live for self is ruinous. But if we give ourselves to Him, He will give us life, and He will make us the people that we were meant to be. Losers are keepers in the kingdom of God. And Jesus goes on to say in verse 25, For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he loses or forfeits himself? To exalt the bank account or professional prestige or impressive possessions or even our preferences over the life of the soul is tragic folly. The world is a soulless and soul-destroying system. And so we are required to abandon the world to save our souls. Get all the stuff, the accomplishments, the money, the promotions that you want. But in light of eternity, who cares if you gain all of it, but you lose your soul or forfeit yourself? Our world tells us, get, get, get. Put yourself at the center. Build yourself up. Do what's right for you. Do what your heart tells you. Live for self. But our king tells us, deny ourselves, to take up our crosses daily and to follow him. Jesus ended his comments by challenging his followers to confess him because those who do so will be affirmed by him in the judgment and because the kingdom of God would touch many of their lives before death, which in fact it did in the transfiguration, the resurrection, and the ascension, and at Pentecost. He says it in verses 26 and 27, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father, and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. You know, it's no wonder that some were ashamed of Jesus during the days of his earthly ministry. But it is astounding that some would be ashamed of him today. You know, Jesus was revealed in the full glory of His sacrificial love. Jesus revealed in the full power of His resurrected glory. He ascended to heaven. He was honored. and you know, Jesus loved and prayed for His people from heaven. Who could be ashamed of that? Yet some are ashamed. You know, the ashamed man believes. You know, you can't be ashamed of something that you don't believe in. He believes, but doesn't take satisfaction and confidence in his belief. Ashamed means that, you know, if you're ashamed of someone, it means you don't want to be seen together in public. It means that you don't want to talk about them. It means that you avoid it when possible. Now, after this extreme call to follow Jesus onto death, he added a promise of significant glory until they see the kingdom of God. Jesus wanted them to know that it wasn't all suffering and death. The end of this all was not death. So then what is the reward of accepting the cross? In the Christian life, first comes the cross, then comes the crown. The reward is a crown, a kingdom. A kingdom is a share in God's glory. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of glory. And our blessed hope is the glorious appearing of our Savior from heaven. And when that happens, we will see His glory, and we be, will be transformed into His glory. For all of the self-denial and suffering of the cross in this life, those who follow Jesus will receive unending glory and joy in the life to come. So don't be ashamed. Look to His glorious coming. This is what it means, and this is what makes it wise to die daily in order to live forever. This is why it makes sense to forsake the world in order to gain glory. So, as we finish this morning, who do you say that Jesus is? Is He a fraud? Is He only a prophet, even maybe a great prophet? Is He merely a great moral teacher? Or is He the Messiah, God's Son, our Savior, and our King, that took on flesh, that lived the perfect life that we never could, that died the death that we deserved, that bore the full wrath of God on our behalf, and that as only God could, defeated sin and death and rose from the grave. And when we trust in Him as our Lord and Savior, we are saved. And Jesus is the Messiah. He is God's Son. He is our Savior, and He is our King. So let us all go and confess Jesus as Lord. Let us cling to his cross as our only hope. and Let us take up our own cross daily and follow him. And as we go to pray and to worship, you know, if you have not confessed Jesus as your Lord and you would like to today, you know, let today be the day of salvation. And don't go another day without salvation in Christ being a reality for you. If you would like to put your faith and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, or you have any questions, you would like to talk about that, you know, come find me after the service, or you can just email us if you want at info at seafordbaptist.com. But we would love to talk to you about that. Let's pray. Dear God, God, we thank you for your grace, and we thank you for your mercy. God, we know that we are sinners, that we deserve death, that we do not deserve your love. We don't deserve your grace. We don't deserve your mercy. Yet, God, you loved us anyway. God, we thank you so much for that. And we pray that you open up our eyes, that you open up our hearts, and help us to see you, see who you really are, God. Help us to know you, and to love you, and to grow in our love for you day after day. And as we grow in that, God, we pray that you help us to serve you. Help us to know the answer to the question, who is Jesus? Not what the latest public opinion poll says, but the real answer, that Jesus is our Messiah and he is our Savior. And we pray that you help us to grow in that knowledge and our walk with you daily. And God, I pray that if there is anyone here that does not know Jesus as Savior this morning, and I pray that you open up their eyes. God, help them to see you. And we know that we live in a nation and a world where so many people are lost. So many people do not know you. So, God, we pray that you break our hearts for the lost, that you help us to share the gospel, and that you help there to be fruit from that. In Jesus' name, amen.